This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the underappreciated risks of egg donation. Right now, it's all being promulgated as sort of an easy way to pay off your student loans. People need to understand what we know and don't know and what all is involved. Egg donations years later when Radio Health Journal returns. Good dietary practices have a strong connection to a lower risk of cognitive decline as we age, according to four large new studies reported at the 2017 Alzheimer's Association International Conference. Results of one study show a 35 to 40 percent lower risk of cognitive impairment among people who've consistently followed heart-healthy diets. Even modest improvements in diet bring a lower risk of decline. Dr. James Hendricks is Director of Global Science Initiatives at the Alzheimer's Association. The size and length of these four studies clearly demonstrate how powerful healthful eating can be in maintaining brain health and function. However, what we eat is just one part of the puzzle. Studies show regular exercise and lifelong learning are also important to reduce the risk of cognitive decline. Another of the new studies suggests that poor diet may promote premature signs of aging through inflammation. To learn more, including the Alzheimer's Association's 10 Ways to Love Your Brain, based on the latest research, visit ALZ.org. Just about a year from now, the world's first test tube baby will turn 40. Since her birth in 1978, about 5 million babies have been born through in vitro fertilization. Most of the time, a woman's own eggs are harvested, fertilized, and re-implanted. The child is biologically her own. But women whose own eggs can't be used increasingly turn to egg donors. Some agencies say 50,000 children have been born in the United States using donor eggs, but nobody really knows the number or what happens to the donors when they're done. None of this is required. Nothing in this industry, any of the assisted reproduction industry, is regulated. That's something that people should be aware of. All of the conventions in terms of screening, in terms of number of times people can donate, all that is recommended. Nothing is required. Dr. Linda Kahn is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at the New York University School of Medicine. She's studied assisted reproductive technologies. We don't know much, to be honest, uh, because these women are not followed. These women provide eggs, and in some states, the records of their donations are supposed to be kept. It is a state-by-state regulation, and some states they're not necessarily kept, so there's really no way of tracing them. There's no record of this in the woman's medical record because she's generally having this done at a clinic that's not her normal place where she receives gynecologic care. And as we don't have a uniform electronic medical record system in this country, those records that she donated may not be linked. So there's really no way to trace these women, and there's no requirement that they be followed up in any systematic way. There's not even a registry. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started collecting data about donors last year. A lot of it just the basics, like height, weight, and age. But a donor's health? It's not investigated very much at all, according to Dr. Richard Paulson, professor of reproductive medicine at the University of Southern California and president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Egg donors, by definition, have to be young, healthy women. So they're screened in the sense that we choose people who are already young and healthy. So 
Once you say that, the further medical screening that is required beyond that is not really that extensive. To a recipient couple, the most important statistic about an egg donor may be her SAT score. Dr. Wendy Chavkin, professor of public health and obstetrics and gynecology at Columbia University, says it's a big business with no incentive to slow down. There are many women and couples who are paying very large sums of money and Getting donor eggs is one which really we should call seller eggs because they're not donations. They are commodities for sale. But getting eggs from somebody else is an important component of the process. So there is every inducement to proceed full speed ahead. The going rate for egg donation is five to $10,000 for a process that takes less than a month. The woman will first have her cycle artificially stopped, so she'll basically be put into artificial menopause, including all the wonderful symptoms of menopause one might expect. Uh, potential effects could include hot flashes, vaginal dryness, mood swings, etc. And then once her cycle stops, it gets restarted by daily injection of ovarian stimulation drugs. And as her ovaries are being stimulated, she's being monitored via transvaginal ultrasound to see how her ovaries are responding. And at a certain point, usually after a couple of weeks, her ovaries will hopefully have produced an optimal amount of eggs and then she'll undergo a retrieval process. The reason you give all these hormones is rather than relying on an ovary to pop one egg a month, which is generally what happens, occasionally it'll pop two and you might end up with twins. In these cases, you are trying to get the ovaries to release more than that so that you can, quote, harvest a bunch of eggs at one time. Doctors aim to have a woman produce 15 to 20 eggs for retrieval. The donor is anesthetized while eggs are aspirated out of the ovaries with a needle, a procedure that carries relatively little risk. But if the administration of hormones sends the ovaries into overdrive, it can have serious effects. If you overshoot, such as we said in a patient with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and you get more than 25 or 30 eggs, these women are then at increased risk for something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, in which the ovaries get really quite enlarged, and then they also start kind of oozing a fluid into the abdomen. It's self-limiting. It goes away, but it can take two weeks before all of that fluid reabsorbs. So it's PMS on steroids, literally. However, Khan says if a woman does have complications, she may have to go to her own gynecologist at her own expense. And the long-term effects of egg donation are unknown. While women who undergo IVF with their own eggs are registered and followed... There's no comparable registry for egg donors. So there's no way to even get the aggregate data. I'm not talking about the individual level data, but even the averages from clinics of how often women have adverse events. We have no adverse event reporting system for egg provision. We have it for vaccination. We have it for FDA-approved drugs. There's just no way to follow up, and so we have really no idea who these women are, what health outcomes they're having long-term, just anecdotal evidence. What we know the best comes from Scandinavia, where they have registries, where they have their health data linked and they're able to follow people 
over time and know what kinds of treatment they got and what happens to them later. The hypothetical concern would be ovarian cancer. Now, the data from the Scandinavian countries that have followed people for some number of years are reassuring. They haven't seen an increase in ovarian cancer. I would say, however, that we haven't followed people long enough because cancers generally tend to have long latency periods, you know, a long time between exposure and the development of disease. So I am partially reassured by these data from Scandinavia, but I would say the word's not quite in yet. But even though we don't have the records of egg donors in the United States, Paulson says the records of those who've undergone IVF are very useful. Those women are more or less donating eggs to themselves. We can extrapolate safety to some degree, but the results go only so far. We don't really know the super long-term risks, and people always worry that if you disrupt the body in some way, for example, stimulating the ovaries, are you going to create a situation of high risk for ovarian cancer or breast cancer? And uh, so far, the data that have been collected, and we do have I would say 20, 25 years worth of information. It looks like that is not the case. The data are really quite reassuring, but you never know super long-term. However, Khan says there's one important difference between egg donors and women who've undergone IVF, and we don't know how it changes things long-term. The woman undergoing IVF, providing eggs for her own treatment, is only going to undergo retrieval once, maybe twice. A woman who is a commercial egg provider it is recommended, there are no requirements here, and there's no way of tracking this, but it is recommended that she not undergo the procedure more than six times. But there are unscrupulous agencies, and there also is the fact that she can go from one agency to another. She doesn't have to tell them that she maxed out at one agency. She can then go to another agency, do another six times. She can go to another agency and do it another six times. So she's undergoing higher levels of stimulation than a woman who provides her own eggs, and she's undergoing this procedure many, many more times. A few women who've donated eggs say that later on, when they wanted to get pregnant, they couldn't. But it's not because they used up all their eggs on donations. number of eggs isn't an issue. By the time a baby girl is born, she has about two million eggs in her ovaries, and on average, even though a woman produces one egg a month, she's blowing through about a thousand because only the best one gets released. So the issue of her running out of eggs is not a big deal. If they're taking 50 eggs instead of one egg, it's still a drop in the bucket. The concern with long-term fertility is not that she's going to run out of eggs. The problem may be that she experiences an infection as part of this procedure. And that infection may damage, say, her fallopian tubes so that she later on needs to undergo fertility treatment herself or damages an ovary or loses an ovary. These are the kinds of medical complications that we're worried about. But are women aware of all the risks? Agreement forms are required for each transaction. But given all the uncertainty and the rush of business turning donation into a commodity, Khan isn't sure that consent will be all that informed. I think that a lot of women enter this not really appreciating the complexity of it, the risks of it. And they sign a lot of legal documents and may not understand what they're actually signing away. And in the end, what they may be responsible for, as I mentioned earlier, if there's medical complications after this is over, it's on them. Do they have insurance? Is that insurance going to cover this? 
They have huge deductibles. What's the story here? A lot of women have been burned badly. We could do a much better job of public education for everybody about what's involved, whereas right now it's all being promulgated as sort of an easy way to pay off your student loans, you know, an easy way to make $10,000. So I think people need to understand what we know and don't know and all is involved, etc. However, Khan says it's probably too late for regulation of egg donation in the United States, especially without a unified national health service to follow donors. Physicians' organizations provide recommendations, but doctors aren't required to follow them. Women need to be educated on the risks when they decide to help another family gain a much-wanted daughter or son. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Living with diabetes can be challenging, complicated, and expensive. A recent survey conducted by Wakefield Research found 62% of adults with diabetes say they'd better manage their disease if supplies were more affordable. Roche Diabetes Care has now introduced the AccuCheck Guide System, a new blood glucose meter and simple pay savings program designed to help make managing diabetes surprisingly simple and more affordable. As part of the AccuCheck Guide System, the new blood glucose meter will help simplify the most frequent tasks needed to manage diabetes, including a new spill-resistant SmartPak test strip vial, a larger blood application area on the strip, and a strip port light that makes testing in daytime, nighttime, or anytime simple. The meter is now available at most pharmacies, and to start saving on test strips, download the SimplePay savings card on the AccuCheck website. Simply hand the Simple Pay card to your pharmacist. With the AccuCheck guide meter and strip prescription for consistent and easy to understand everyday low prices. For more information, visit accu-check.com/guide. Medical notes this week: If you're a chronic bad sleeper, your chances of Alzheimer's disease could be increased. A small study in the journal Brain finds that just one bad night's sleep increases amyloid beta, a brain protein associated with Alzheimer's. And a week of poor sleep also increases another Alzheimer's-linked protein called tau. Researchers believe a good night's sleep reduces those proteins, but that chronic poor sleepers never catch up. Have you ever had trouble getting a child to eat their veggies? Try changing the way you describe them. A new study from JAMA Internal Medicine finds that people eat more green beans, for example, when they're described as sweet, sizzling green beans with crispy shallots, rather than as just plain green beans. Researchers call it indulgent labeling, and it makes people 41% more likely to eat healthy foods compared to when they have their normal names. A compound that's found in foods like aged cheese, mushrooms, soy products, legumes, corn, and whole grains could boost lifespan and help prevent the most common type of liver cancer. The compound is called spermidine, and a study in the journal Cancer Research shows that animals given an oral supplement of it for their entire lives survived an average of 25% longer. Animals starting on the supplement later in life still lived 10% longer. Researchers are investigating spermidine safety, but since it appears naturally in foods, they're optimistic. And finally, a new study may make you think twice before reaching into the fridge for a late night snack. Findings presented at the annual meeting of the Associated Professional Sleep Societies suggests that there may be many negative health effects from eating at night. Researchers say people who eat after 7 p.m. had increased weight and higher insulin and cholesterol levels compared to those who eat earlier. 
The findings suggest that having meals earlier in the day may prevent overeating and help you stay satisfied longer. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Summer is a deadly time on our roads, but our cars can be dangerous even when they're parked. Hi, I'm Debbie Herzman, President of the National Safety Council, and this is your Safety Minute. When it's hot outside, we have to pay special attention to children in our cars. In 2016, 39 kids died in hot cars, primarily between Memorial Day and Labor Day. The interior of a car can hit 125 degrees in mere minutes, even with the windows cracked. So create reminders. Put your cell phone or briefcase in the back seat with your child so you don't forget about them. Never leave your child alone in a car, not even for a minute. And if you see a child alone in a car at any temperature, call 911. A second glance into the back seat can prevent a terrible tragedy. Safety Minute is brought to you by the National Safety Council and the Volkswagen Group of America. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.